pray. Amen. We're on page three in the Pew Bibles, Genesis three seventeen to twenty four. Um, today we focus on the ideas of sin and judgment, and how that plays out. And a common theme throughout the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation is that grace is there all along. And I want us to see today how that grace plays out in the lives of Adam and Eve. This comes on the heels of God, uh, of God responding to their sin. And we commonly call it the fall. The fall and then the curse. And it's interesting to see who the curse is, is about and, and what the curse is on and who it's not on. So I would encourage you to, to listen closely to some of that, how that plays out today. Let's go ahead and read there together, uh, verse 17 through 24. We'll read the whole thing and then we'll jump into the first couple verses here. 317 to 24. And to Adam he said, this is God speaking, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore... The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Verse 17 says, And to Adam. Note carefully how God speaks to Adam here. And to Adam, he said, that's God who said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. In other words, because you listened to her and not to me, God is saying, that word there for listen is actually a Hebrew idiom for obey. Because you obeyed your wife instead of me is what God is saying. Because you obeyed the voice of your wife, listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. There's the judgment that we see there. The word cursed there. It's the opposite of blessing. God, remember in the beginning of Genesis, He blessed all of creation. And He called every single item in creation good, good, good. Six times He said good, good, good. And then the seventh, when He made man and woman, He said very good. Good, And he gave his blessing to creation and to man and woman there. This is the opposite of that. It's removing God's protection and favor, and that's the curse. The curse is, note this important point, the curse 
is on the ground. Cursed is the ground. This is important later on. If you're taking notes, notice also that God curses the serpent in 3.14 preceding this passage today. In 3.14, God curses the serpent. He says, because you have done this, in other words, because you led my people astray, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. He does not actually curse Adam and Eve. And that's an important point to note. He curses the serpent and the ground, but not Adam and Eve. Even among their sinful rebellion against him, he curses the ground and the serpent, but not Adam and Eve. Oh, there are effects of their sin. We'll see this later on, but he does not curse them personally. He says, because of you, the ground is cursed. In other words, because of of Adam's sinful disobedience toward God, there are consequences. Now, of course, if you remember back to the previous passage uh, that we just alluded to in the last few verses in 14 to 16, especially in 16, God had already pronounced the consequences of the woman's sin in verse 16. He says this to the woman, he says, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The consequence of her sin was that increased pain in childbearing. So let's pick up again in verse 17. It says, in pain, that is, in pain, this now refers to Adam, he will eat of it, that is, of the ground. He will eat of the ground all of the days of your life, God says to Adam. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, that is for out of the ground, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God sets in motion here. The obvious consequence of sin is death. He says, you will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Before this, they had eternal life with God in their relationship with him. Until their sin. So, we're calling this section here the juxtaposition. That's what it says in the notes here. The juxtaposition of judgment and grace in verses 17 to 19. Juxtaposition is just a a fancy word that you can take home to impress your family and friends. That means to take two items and to have them in close proximity with one another so as to compare them and show the contrasts. It's a fancy word that just means to to put things together and to show the contrasts. And there's a contrast of both judgment and sin going on here. Juxtaposition, because God says three times in three verses, he says to Adam, you will eat, you will still eat. That's grace. That's grace. But there's also judgment because he says, though... Though you will eat, you will eat with difficulty. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Thorns and thistles will come out of the ground. That's both grace and judgment. Grace because though you deserve instant death, Adam, I will let you continue to eat. I will let you continue to work the garden like I've called you to do. Verse 15 in chapter 2, God says he planted humans to work the ground and to keep it. Remember we said earlier in Genesis 
that God made the garden and then he planted people in this garden of his so that they would grow to demonstrate his image. We are made to, to grow, to, to make known the image of God, his goodness and his character and his mercy, the things that, comes, that come from God's heart. We talked about that in 2.15. So, so God says, I'm going to let you continue to work in that manner and to grow like that, but the judgment is that it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. He uses the word pain in verse 16 there to describe Adam's work. It's the same word that was used to describe uh, the pain in childbirth that we saw earlier. And that pain refers to the kind of frustration that Adam will experience in his work. In other words, before your rebellious sin against me, God says, before that, when everything was coming easily and we had perfect relationship, and in fact, it says earlier on in 2.9, it says that God made the garden grow. In 2.9, God did all that for them. But now... They're going to have to work and keep it in a way which is frustrating. (laughs) Who here is not endlessly frustrated with their work? We have expectations about what we do. That it, that it does something, that it produces, that, that our hard work goes somewhere. And it does, but it goes somewhere in a manner that is endlessly frustrating. All of us have experienced this in our lives. Sure, there are highs. Sure, there are times when it works. Sure, there are positive parts of our work. But every single one of us has experienced this frustration for a large part of our lives. We work and we work and we work, and then things don't work. I was talking just a few days ago with a man in our congregation who was working on a project at home. And it was something that should have taken about half a day, uh, but inevitably he needed some wood and some nails and some tools. And, and as he got into this project, inevitably he found, like we all do in projects like that, that it took the entire day and three to four trips to Lowe's just to get the things that he forgot to get when he planned ahead, and he thought he was ready, but then he didn't realize that he read something wrong, and so the, the, the instructions didn't even help him that much. And so this is the kind of thing that always happens when we set out on a project. There's always more that we didn't expect. There's always frustration. And things, things never seem to go the way that we think that they should. That frustration is because work doesn't work. It doesn't achieve what we want it to. We think work is going to make us adequate. We think working hard enough is going to make us adequate to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, but ultimately to God. This is fundamental fabric of creation kind of stuff. And I am the worst of sinners when it comes to thinking that the harder that I work, the more it's going to produce. The lesson here for Adam and for us is abundantly clear. It's simply this. Apart from God... 
Apart from the presence of God, no one's work will ever satisfy. And it won't do what we expect it to do. And it's because we live in a broken world. And it is the loss, in fact, that brokenness has, has a loss that's beyond how we experience it in our work. The real loss, the real loss in the garden is the loss of God's presence that was the problem. It was the loss of the presence of God that was the problem with Adam's and Eve's sin. They would never, ever know this side of heaven the kind of perfect intimacy and relationship with God that they enjoyed. The cool walk with God in the, in, in the cool of the day in the garden that was described earlier in Genesis. They won't know that again. And isn't that what we really, really miss when we sin? Sure, we experience frustrations of sin, but it's fundamentally about the loss of the presence of God. We see this loss continue to play out later, but let's look at something that is a glimpse of grace. Verses 20 and 21 are great verses. And we're going to camp out here for the last little bit here, probably in in 20 and 21 in these verses, because what we see here are glimpses of grace. We're calling them mitigating graces. Uh, Mitigating is another big fancy word that means to lessen the severity of something. And so these are graces that, that mean that we can do life in a broken world, despite the fact that it's frustrating, despite the fact that our work doesn't work, despite the fact that, that things are hard, we can, we can live with hope because of these graces. Look at verses 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So verse 20. Uh, get, Get this here. Adam, whose job was naming things, uh, we, we learned that in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2, 20, 19 to 20, if you're taking notes there. Adam, whose job was naming things, named Eve. And this is important to catch because it's a glimpse of that greater grace. Even now, immediately after they had sinned, the first sin against God in all of history, immediately after their sin, there are glimpses of what we're calling mitigating grace, because he, he names her the, the giver of life, literally is her name. And Adam knew from the previous uh, passage here in, in, in 315, in fact, just before ours, Adam knew from that verse that God had a plan. He knew that God had a plan, and so his naming of Eve is exhibiting faith in God's plan. That's important to catch. 3.15 is a special verse. We call it the Proto-Evangelium. We're going to put that up on the screen here. It's a fancy word. It's a Latin word that means the first gospel. Scholars and theologians uh, since the early centuries of Christianity have called this verse the first gospel gospel, because it says in this verse that he, that is, God will put enmity, he'll put hostility, which is just a long-term struggle, long-term struggle between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your 
and the woman, your offspring, that's the serpent's offspring, and her offspring. It says this in the verse here. Let's put it up there if we've got it, which I think we do. Yes. No. 315. Um, if you're looking in your Bibles, in 315, it talks about how, how God has put hostility between the serpent and the woman. The serpent and the woman's offspring. And it says, He shall bruise your heel. This is God talking to the serpent. And this is the first gospel because what it tells us is that the offspring of Eve will bring a death blow to the serpent. It says, you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the serpent will crush or bruise the heel of the offspring of Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve's offspring will bruise or strike or crush the head of the serpent. Striking the head is a deadly blow. Heel strikes are temporary. We live as people of limps with sin because we have experienced heel strikes. But the offspring of Adam and Eve is what will strike the ultimate blow to the serpent. So even at this point, Adam himself already understood that one of Eve's offspring would defeat the serpent. In fact, the word there in Genesis 3.15 is a singular pronoun. It says, he, singular, will crush the serpent's head. So even this early, immediately after they had sinned against perfect, holy God, when Adam calls his wife Eve, it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith, of faithful hope that God will do what he has said he will do and work out his plan. And so we see that even now, our faith in the cross this side of the cross is no different than the kind of faith that, that Adam and Eve placed in God at the very beginning because they saw that the plan was unfolding. They didn't know as much as we do about how that would unfold, but they had faith. Look at verse 21. It continues to tell this story of the glimpses of grace. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Notice it says, the Lord God made these garments of skin. If you remember early on in Genesis, we talked about the generic, sort of general name for God, which was Elohim. And when you see God in early Genesis, it means the, the creator God, the transcendent generic name for God, who sort of stands far off and creates worlds from afar. But this name, Lord God, is Yahweh Elohim. It is the more intimate personal name for God. It's the covenant name that he uses when he addresses the people themselves. The only time it's not used is when Eve and the serpent earlier on in chapter 3 are in cahoots with one another. And they, they, don't, they don't call him Yahweh Elohim. They call him the generic name for God. And so here is the personal name for God because he's speaking to Adam and Eve. And he's making for them, verse 21, garments of skin and clothing them. There are a couple important things about this to note. Because it's a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus 
making up for our sin. It's a foreshadowing. Number one, the first thing to notice is that this is a sovereign work of God. In other words, the, the, the garments, the, the skins that God makes for them, this is a sovereign work of God that is conceived and executed by Him alone. Remember back in 3.7 when it says the eyes of both, that's Adam and Eve, were opened. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. They made themselves loincloths, it says. Adam and Eve's idea, like ours, is to cover, is to cover the sin. And their attempts, obviously, were pretty futile in comparison to God's tunics of skin. And literally, the words there are tunics. It's the kind of, uh, of skin covering that goes at least to the knees and perhaps all the way down to the ankles. So this was like the first kind of, of real clothing. And it came from God to cover their skin. It was representative of what God would do. And note this, because it's super important. You don't get skins from animals unless they're dead. It's the first example in all of Scripture of sacrifice and blood offering. Now, this wasn't, this wasn't the kind of sacrifice that would happen in the temple later on. But it's the first example of blood having to be shed to cover for sin. It's a foreshadowing of the atonement of Jesus Christ. No Jew and no priest would ever read verse 21 and not know exactly what's going on. It's very clear that God killed an animal to clothe them. And this act of God sets in motion a system of covering and atoning, making up for sin that foreshadows the eventual sacrifice, the sacrificial death of Christ himself. God's covering of Adam and Eve with garments of skin is an illustration of the method of grace in response to sin even in the beginning of Genesis. Even at the beginning of the Old Testament, God covers sin. Think about the way that we talk about being covered in sin. Think about the biblical picture of being justified before God. It says that we have the gift of the robe of righteousness. In Zechariah 3, Zechariah has a vision of Joshua the high priest. And it pictures Joshua representing the people before God. And it says, The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin, away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, with pure robes. Of righteousness. The New Testament writers pick up on this theme. If you remember in Luke 15, it's a story of the prodigal son. And the sinful older son, he returns to the home of the father who lavishly extends grace to the sinful son. He comes back 
and he is clothed with the best robe in his wealthy father's house. The father, of course, represents Father God. It says this in Luke 15:22 to 24. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. This is God talking about covering our sin. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Believers in Christ in the book of Galatians are said to be clothed with Christ. Friends, even in Genesis, if the message isn't patently obvious, it's this. Despite your ugliest, most heinous, most rebellious, prideful sin against the perfect God who created you, the Lord God, despite all of that, at the very beginning, set in plan a motion to save you because He loves you and He wants to provide for you and He wants to cover your sin with His own righteousness. What better way to start out a new year by being reminded of the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ foreshadowed in the lives of the very first people who rebelled against God. Our story is no different than theirs. Our story is no different than theirs. Let's pray.